Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, as we turn now to Your Word, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my spirit be pleasing and acceptable to You, our Lord, our Rock, and our salvation. Amen. So I appreciate your patience as we've been slogging our way through the Paul's letter to the Romans over the last several months, and we've been getting at it. But if you've been paying attention and following along since we started back in the fall, one of the things you notice is all of a sudden there's been a turn in the last few chapters and moved from this big topics of theology down to the local situation. And one of my professors in seminary used to say something like this. He said, when you're reading the Scripture, when you're reading the text, pay attention to what has prominence. In other words, what shows up a lot, and sometimes maybe within a particular passage if you see a word repeated numerous times. But here I would call your attention to Paul, when he turns in Romans chapter 14 and then into 15, spends a long time talking about this relationship between the strong and the weak, which kind of talked about the strong are most likely... Gentile believers, people who don't see a need to follow the Jewish laws anymore, and then the weak, primarily Jewish believers, who believe in the necessity of following and adhering to those beliefs, not as a way to add to their salvation, but as a way to faithfully live out their practice to Jesus. And it seems that there were some schisms, some divisions, separations within the church, segregation within the church between these two groups, between the weak and the strong, between the Jews and the Gentiles. And Paul has written this big theology that he's talked all through the book of Romans about how God has come to make a difference, to create a new people, to bring the two people and make them one, that there is this grace that is available to all, regardless of status. And now Pastor Paul is applying it to this specific situation. And he's saying that life together is essential. Sometimes when people read the letter to the Romans, they think, oh, it's all about justification by faith. I would suggest that if you look at how many times justification by faith is mentioned versus by how much this dispute, these differences, and the issue of Jews and Gentiles comes up, the issues of Jews and Gentiles comes up a lot more. It's not to say justification by faith and these other theological issues aren't significant, but what's significant for Paul is he's saying that one of the things that God is deeply concerned about is people living together, that he came together in Jesus to bring people together, to create, to take these people who came from very different places, who never would have dreamed of being together, the Jewish people, God's chosen people who saw themselves as separate and chosen, and the Gentiles who felt like outsiders. And God, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, has brought them together and made them into one people. But now they need to live that out. And so part of Paul's message in Romans is what that looks like. And so last week we talked about Romans 14 and we talked about the issues of disputable issues, that there are some things that we can go one way or the other. It's not as significant. It's not about salvation. It's not about Christ as being the only way. But there are issues that people can disagree about and about how we interact and we work those things out. And this week I want to look at it from a different angle, a little bit different angle, thinking about the idea of welcoming or accepting. And so again, we've got a picture What has Jesus done? Jesus has brought together people and made them into one body. He's done it by grace. And so people, that means they're brought together regardless of status. That it's not about male versus female or wealthy versus poor or Jew versus Gentile, any of those other things. All those things are irrelevant, but what matters is God's grace. And that grace is given to each 
regardless of the status. And that this grace, we could say, overwhelms the division. So there's this division, this schism within the church back in Rome, just as there are divisions and schisms and segregations in our church today. And what Paul's getting at is that segregate, this grace overwhelms that. Now, Paul isn't suggesting that it erases the differences. And he's clear about that. It doesn't mean that we take away all the differences. And if you were to flip to the very end, the final chapters of the Scripture, and see this picture that the prophet John paints of God's final days when it says, and he looks at the throne room and he says, and I, there I saw people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And he doesn't say, well, they were all the same. He still says there's this diverse group of people, this multicolored, multi-ethnic, multilingual people of God all to gather together. And so the grace of God doesn't erase those differences. Being in church doesn't erase the differences. And what we realize is it's not easy to live together with people who are different than you. Now, back in the 1980s and 1990s, there were a number of scholars, a number of church leaders who were looking at how to grow churches, and they observed something. They observed that churches grow faster, generally speaking, when all the people have similar ideas and thoughts, and it was called the homogeneous unit principle, homogeneous meaning the same. And so when I entered seminary in 1994, and there were a lot of popular books on what was called the church growth movement. And this was the days of when churches like Saddleback Church and Willow Creek Church were kind of predominant. The churches that people around the United States, and you maybe heard of some of those, were the kind of leading churches. And everybody was going to conferences put on by these churches. And one of the things that they did was they took this observation that was made. Many of them took this observation that was made and turned it into a principle. And the principle became, if you want to grow a church, you find people who are similar and who are like. Because it's all that. If you go a place and everybody kind of talks like you, acts like you, thinks like you, you're going to feel more comfortable, you're going to feel more welcome. The consequence was, though, that churches grew. The churches grew immensely and they grew huge. But oftentimes... And again, generally speaking, there were exceptions to the rule. Generally speaking, those churches all were very homogeneous. They looked very much the same. They all came from similar socioeconomic backgrounds, often from similar racial backgrounds, often from similar political backgrounds, because it was a lot more comfortable to be around people like you. But what I want to suggest is as we're looking at what Paul is saying, he says, that's not the approach that God invites us to take. So we're going to look at Romans 15 here. And so the first part of it, he kind of echoes last week where he talks about the strong bearing with the weak and not pleasing ourselves. And there's this idea, this sense of solidarity. But where I really want to pick up is in uh, verse 5 of chapter 15. And so he says this, he says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Jesus Christ had. So well, what, what attitude did Jesus have? He's saying, he says, this is what I want, that God will give you a mind like Jesus, which goes back to what Paul had said earlier, to have your mind transformed and not conformed. But so what sort of mind did Jesus have? And he says it in verse 7, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. 
So the question, well, how did Jesus accept people? And that's what he's been building up. This is this big, long theological argument Paul's been going in the first 12 chapter, 11 chapters of Romans. How did Jesus accept that he accepted people regardless of their status? It didn't matter if they were Jew or Gentile. What mattered was faith in him. And so there was this broad acceptance. And now he's saying, I want you to live the same way. Or if we don't look at Paul's argument here, we look at the life of Jesus and read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, these gospels, these stories of Jesus. How did Jesus respond to people? How did Jesus accept people? It was this broad and this open acceptance where he was bringing people in. And he's saying, Paul is saying to the church in Rome and subsequently to us, I want you to do the same. I want you to be filled with God for this kind of warm acceptance. And I, I don't even like the language of acceptance. I think welcome is probably a better way to think of it. And I think I talked about this last week. Accepting people can kind of feel like the way we use the word tolerance now. I tolerate people. And, and that's more, Paul is getting it more like, no, welcome them. Invite them in. And so he highlights this in verses 8 through 9 where he really talks about this about the way that he's done it. So he says in verse 8, he says, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. So Jesus comes and he enters in and he fulfills those promises made to the patriarchs, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, to make people into a great nation. And he says, And moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And so again, there's this picture of all these things being brought that these people, the Jews and the Gentiles, brought together and all for God's glory. And he goes on and he highlights that in some of the verses that follow those quotes from the Old Testament where he talks about the Jews and the Gentiles being together. And so he paints a picture of what it looks like. And he, say, he says, they're all working together, verses 9 and 10. He says, and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praise of your name. Verse 10, again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. So the question is, here's this picture Paul says. He says, it's this picture of the Jews and the Gentiles coming together. And they're all singing together. What's a prerequisite for singing together? Being in the same room, right? Yeah. I mean, can you say, I mean, I mean, we, I mean, nowadays we think, well, we can do it. We can do it on Zoom. But, but the reality, when Paul's talking the implication is, if Jews and Gentiles are praising God and singing together, they're in the same room. They're not in separate places. They're not like, okay, Jews, you go over there and you sing, and Gentiles, you go over there and sing, but we'll be singing together. Because how many of us would think, if I took some of you and sent you down to the gym and said, here's the songs we're going to sing, we'll pipe some music down there. Would you feel like you were singing along with the people in the room? Maybe to some extent, but how much more so if we're standing in the room together? Being brought together. And so when Paul's painting this picture, he's saying, I think, that singing together means being in the same room together. And so when Paul talks about welcoming and accepting He's painting this picture. He says, when there's a lack of welcome, it leads to separation, to segregation, schisms. And I think this is what Paul was addressing in Rome. Were these separations between the Jews and the Gentiles and these differences that were deep-seated and long-standing about adherence to the law and the ways they ate and all these things that were wrapped around that. 
And now for us today, Fruitland Covenant Church in 2023, Jews and Gentiles as a separation issue isn't something that comes up a whole lot in our minds. So as I was thinking about it, I was trying to think, what are some things that it might look like today for us to say, we are a church who models, who exudes, who demonstrates what the welcome of God look, truly looks like. Now, as I say this, a couple prefaces. One is, I've never met a church that doesn't think they're a friendly and welcoming church. It doesn't mean that many of them aren't. But most churches are somewhat unable to be self-reflective on this in terms of being welcoming and accepting and, and recognizing how friendly or how welcoming of a church they are. And here's my hypothesis, hypothesis for why this is true. Because how do you find out or how do you determine if you're welcoming or friendly? Well, you ask each other, right? Now, my question is, if you come to a church and you don't feel welcomed or you don't feel it's friendly, do you stick around? Probably not. So that means if you stay at a church, you probably felt like it was a welcoming and friendly church, right? Therefore, my hypothesis is you are all here, or most of you are here, because when you came, you felt like it was a welcome and friendly church. All the people who didn't think so aren't here. Therefore, if we take a poll of the congregation, what's the answer going to be? We're a welcoming and friendly church. We all know that. I'm not highlighting or singling out Fruitland Covenant Church. I think this would apply in many cases to any church within the Whitehall, Muskegon area, any church in the United States, and churches around the world. That's just the nature of things. We tend to think very highly of ourselves and think we're welcoming and friendly. And it's partly because that's aspirational. We want to be, and I think that's a good thing. We want to be. We think we are that because we know that's what we ought to be. That's the, we know that's what God is calling us to be. And so I would say it's an invitation for us to reflect on that and say, how do we reflect? How do we live out? How do we exude the welcome of God? And so I want to think about that and have a conversation or maybe offer some challenges, offer some questions about what might this look like for Fruitland Covenant? What are some maybe ways that we can think about being a welcoming church? And in terms of those areas that maybe tend to divide and to separate us. And so some of these I've talked about before, but I want to kind of revisit them. They're important. One is, I want to think about in terms of being welcoming, because welcoming means that all people are together, that all the voices are together. And one of the things I've been reading more about, learning more about over the last year in particular is um, thinking about people with disabilities. Now, according to the CDC, the government says one in four adult Americans have some sort of disability. And by that, they mean mobility, cognition, hearing, vision, independent living, or self-care. Kind of the six categories of that. I think in terms of it's one in, a, one in seven senior adults, mobility is probably the highest, with one in seven adult, adults having some sort of mobility issues, a varying kind. And we've talked about it before, and it's worth highlighting again. But the question is, do we create a culture that welcomes those with disabilities? And again, I think we've made some great steps. We've taken some good steps. A couple of years ago, we, we realized that people with 
who use uh, mobility, like walkers, devices and stuff, aren't, it's difficult to get in and out of our pews. We rearranged some of the pews and made it a little easier. When the church was built, there was a recognition that there needed to be a ramp, there needed to be an elevator. But I want us to say, what else can we do? What else might we consider as we think about people? Because it's more than just, and even it's thinking about, okay, if we have a child who has mobility issues, how easy would it be for them to get out and go to a classroom, a child's classroom? We have a platform with stairs that are awkward for many people who have mobility. And that's just mobility issues. What about people who are with hearing disabilities? Is the music too loud, too soft? What about visuals? If you have visual disabilities, how easy is it to pick up our bulletin and read? How easy is it to see the screens and see those things? What if your hearing disability is such that you require an interpreter? Someone to sign so that you can understand what's going on. And I heard someone once challenge people. He says, well, why would we need an interpreter if we don't have any people who are deaf? To which the person, other person responded, well, why would a deaf person ever come unless you have an interpreter? And I'm not necessarily suggesting we go out and hire someone to interpret, but the question is, in terms of being a welcome place, the welcome place is sometimes even before a person steps in the door, do they feel like they could fit in? Do they feel like they would be welcome? If they have a child with, with some sort of disability, they're disruptive, and I think we do a great job of that. You know, it's not always true in churches. I've been in churches, visited churches where a child makes a noise and there's 70 heads on a pivot. <laughs> and they're not looking to celebrate and smile. It's, it's the death stare. Well, how could you just... And he said, well, then if I'm a parent with a child who, who speaks that way, then am I welcome there? You know, how do we deal with sensory issues? There's all these questions, and so it's a question for us. And again, this isn't necessarily the kind of sermon where I provide you all the answers, but it's for us to begin as a congregation, as a people, as a body, to begin to discern, are we welcoming? How are we inviting other people in? How are we thinking about people who have different abilities, who are disabled in ways that we don't think about? You know, how easy is it for them to navigate? How easy is it for them to hear, to see, to participate? All those different things that so often we take for granted. And that's, I think, part of what Paul is getting at here, beyond those issues that are real easy to see, to be able to say, how can we create a congregation? How can we create a people of God where everyone truly feels welcomed and valued? Not just accommodated or tolerated, but welcomed and truly a part of it. And so Christine Pohl writes it this way. She says, God's guest list includes a disconcerting number of poor and broken people, those who appear to bring little to any gathering except their need. The distinctive quality of Christian hospitality is that it offers a generous welcome to the least without concern for advantage or benefit to the host. I want to go back to that there. You notice that part where she says, oops, 
I'll get back to it. There we go. Ah! <laughs> then there's the technologically challenged. Do we accept them here? So. All right. Without concern for advantage or benefit to the host. We're welcoming and not thinking about like, well, how, does this, how is this good for me? How do we, oh, wouldn't it look great? It would be great if we had a church because how great would our church look if we had people with disabilities? We get all these people. Paul said, and what Christine Pohl is getting at her, that's not the point. The point isn't so that we can look good. The point is because that's the life of Jesus. Then she goes on, such hospitality reflects God's greater hospitality that welcomes the undeserving, provides the lonely with a home, and sets a banquet table for the hungry. And so the question is, do we create an environment of unity and inclusion? Do we create an environment of, uni- an environment of unity and inclusion? And so we can begin to ask ourselves that question. But maybe we also begin by asking those within our congregation with disabilities. Say, do you feel, I mean, are there ways that we could do better where you could participate fully, where you, do you feel fully welcome? And then maybe we ask people in the community, the people around us and say, when you think of Fruitland Covenant Church, does that feel like a welcoming place? We ask experts. There's different ways to do this. And we're going to move on to a second topic. And then that's the area of racial segregation, an area I'd like to see a stretch. And so again, maybe a couple caveats before. I recognize, first of all, that the community we live in is a predominantly white community. Again, going back to demographics, if, if you were to take a a drive of 15 minutes from Fruitland Covenant Church, it's about 90% Caucasian, about 5% African American, smattering of different, you know, Hispanic and a couple others. So primarily 90% white within a 15-minute drive. If you expand that out to a 20-minute drive, it drops to about 75% white. A significant change. And so I recognize in part that a church can only be... Now, when we lived in Sheboygan County previously... Sheboygan County is like 96% white. I mean, I think there were like 500 non-white people in the entire county. And so, what does it look like? But I want us to think about what that looks like. And also saying this, this isn't a judgment of who we are or the way we've done. And we've had people of color within the congregation in the past and, and currently. And so, there's different ways we can do that. But it's a challenge of can we be better? How can we better be better? Would someone, would an African-American feel comfortable here and feel comfortable? And we say, well, we've, we've had it before. And I, this goes sometimes to the, all right, it sometimes goes to the, well, I'm not racist. I have a black friend. And, and people kind of laugh at it. People chuckle at it. And people are like, oh, you're treading on thin ice here, Pastor. I know, but, but we recognize that sometimes we've been doing, a, I've been leading a study group um, for the past 12 weeks, and we're going to do another one in the fall, and, and I've been part of a group with the covenant, and recognize that there's, the word racist is a charged word, but to recognize we live in a racialized society, and when people have studied what it looks like to live and what churches look like, many of those leading scholars, and they look at it and they say, there's churches that are multicolored. In other words, they have people of different colors. There's black women. But then there are churches who are truly multi-ethnic. And the difference is where the power comes because sometimes a church is multicolored, but it still really has a predominant way of thinking and feeling. And part of this was experienced in the last couple of years, and there have been a number of different articles on it, different studies on it, was there was a large exodus of 
African Americans out of predominantly white churches. And part of that arose because although they had been a part of that church, they felt they realized that they were there, but they weren't truly welcome, that their voices, their different ideas, their different ways of seeing the world weren't truly welcome. People were happy to have them in the church because it made them feel good and say, look, we've got black people in our church. We've got Hispanic. But many of them realized when issues of racism and such came up that they weren't truly welcome, that their voices and ideas weren't welcome. And so there are churches that are multicolored. In other words, there's but we don't truly, those churches at the same time, don't truly value the voices, the ideas, and the perspectives. And so to be a multi-ethnic church is truly to value the voices and the ideas and the perspectives, particularly when they're different than our predominant ones. And we're going to get to that in a little bit. But, again, it's not a criticism not necessarily a judgment, not saying we're a terrible church and we're a racist church. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, I would suggest that maybe there are ways that we can grow and be more welcoming. Or maybe we think about ways that we can be in terms of this idea of welcoming. So when um, studies are done, it looks like about 87% of churches in the United States are homogeneous. In other words, that they're not multi-ethnic. Again, challenged somewhat sometimes by the... Um, demographics of the area. And a, a truly multi-ethnic church is one where 80% of, where one, ethno, one ethnicity does not make up 80% of the congregation. Again, in our area, that would be challenging just because of the realities of the demographics of our area. But one of the things that, um, and I'm going to quote a couple times from Michael Emerson. Michael Emerson's a sociologist. Um, he is a member of an evangelical covenant church, and I'm going to quote a little bit later on from him. He spoke at our denominational pastors meeting just, just last year in 2022. But one of the things that he has done is he's studied a lot of this, and he's been studying this for decades now. One of the things he's realized is that local churches are 10 times more segregated than the neighborhoods they live in, generally, and are 20 times more segregated than the schools, the nearby schools. And so there's this sense that something's going on. And so here, here's some statistics from Michael Emerson. And these were taken in late 2020. We're going to go to the first one. And he talks about this. He says, the U.S. has a race problem. He says, they're practicing, and he, he talks about practicing white Christians, practicing black Christians. He says, that when it looks at this question of, does the United States have a race problem? That 87% of practicing black Christians agreed. Of practicing white Christians only 30% agreed. And that was actually down from 2016. So in 2020, 30% of practicing white Christians and 87% of practicing black Christians, in other words, people who attend church regularly, believe that the United States had a race problem. We say, well, okay, now, now we go back to our question of if we're sitting in a congregation and we have a group of people and there's a, a black Christian and a white Christian... And they disagree on whether or not there's a race problem, how that works in terms of welcome. Second one. And this one was one of the questions. He had a long list of slides during this presentation. He's, Do you think Asians, African Americans, Hispanics are treated less fairly in hiring, pay, promotions, and housing, and mortgages, and in criminal justice system? And they actually asked these as all separate questions, but they realized across the board that the questions were all like, answered exactly the same. And he said, the majority of Asians, African-American, Hispanics, Christian or not, agreed. Half of non-Christians agreed, but white 
practicing Christians, two-thirds disagreed. The vast disagreement between these. Last one, prejudice index. And so there were 15 different questions, and they combined these, and they included questions such as, I am fearful of other races. The highest scoring group, white practicing Christians. And this was not explained away by political affiliation, where people live, age, education, income, or gender. So it didn't matter if you were rich or poor, Republican or Democrat, if you lived in the South or were in the North, there were these things. And so why show these? As a hypothetical in part, to consider it mostly church, white church where these views are held. So again, if there's this consistent theme where whites and blacks view things very differently about the situation here in the United States, and the differences between white practicing Christians and almost everyone else, how long do you think someone would be comfortable? How long do you think an African-American would be comfortable and welcome, especially if they choose to speak up on an issue? If they have questions about it, all of a sudden, no, we don't talk about that, or no, there's not a race problem. Maybe they're comfortable until the conversation comes up. Or maybe they're comfortable until the conversation never comes up. And that's what this black exodus from the churches I talked about was because many blacks were in these white churches and they were all excited about the church and they were hearing about the Bible and about Jesus. And then there were all these racial issues being talked about around the country. And week after week after week, they waited for their pastor to say something and they said nothing. And finally they said, do these people really care about the issues that I'm facing? And what Michael Emerson and his partners have discovered, the thing is that no, a lot of them don't. And I realized, no, it wasn't 100% on either side. And there are differences. But someone seeing these things, would they be truly welcome? And can we welcome someone who we truly don't understand? And so I think as we think about this, how do we model, how do we show what it looks like to be welcoming? And part of it, I think, is by educating ourselves, by learning more about some of these issues, because sometimes we're simply unaware. I know in the small group I've been leading on Thursday nights with some folks here from the congregation, that's been one of the recurring themes is like, I never knew that. I grew up reading history books. I, was, I, I liked history. I read all, and I have been shocked in the past 10 years as I've been reading more and more, all these things I never heard about and never knew. The other day, I watched a video, and it was about this freedom march. Um, I forget, it was down in Alabama, I believe. And so they went, this group of people went down, and they were driving. They entered on a bus, and they were walking through the streets of this town and along the side of the streets. And it was a, a mixed group of people. They were African-Americans and white, uh, led by a, a pastor and a number of different people. They got out, and they wanted to go into this community and they were walking down the streets, and the streets were lined, and there was a row of police. The, no, it was, it was in Georgia. It was the Georgia, in Georgia. And so there were the Georgian state police and this, um, local police and stuff lining. And all behind that were these crowds of people, and I mean hundreds and hundreds of people waving Confederate flags, throwing rocks at the marchers, walking through this town in For Forsyth, Georgia is where it was. Anyone want to take a guess what year that was? 1987. Not so long ago. I mean, we think of that. Oh, that was a long time ago. This was not that long ago. And in this matter of this thing, we were learning about all these towns where 
um, that essentially had kicked out all the, all the African Americans in town in the early 1900s. Just come in one night and said, you need to move out. By noon tomorrow, you will be gone from your house. They didn't get a chance to sell the house. Didn't get, they were just moved out. And many of these towns remained exclusively white. And there was one conversation. Again, this was from a documentary in the late 80s. And the producer of the documentary was an African-American man. And he's sitting down with this older white man, sitting down having a conversation, and says, well, why, why did you move to this town? What is it that you like about this town that you're living in? He says, well, there's a lot of great things, but the primary reason I lived here is there's no colored people here. And I can name 200 other people who have this same exact reason for not moving. So here he is, a white man sitting across from a black man telling him that the main reason he moved to the town was because there are no colored people in town. Again, in my lifetime, late 1980s. So these, these are not old. And so these are the kinds of things that are going on. And, and the other thing is the crossover oftentimes between what happened in the churches and what was going on. So lynchings. Think of lynching. Lynchings, over 3,000 lynchings took place between the end of the Civil War and up until the 1950s lynchings. And lynchings, public lynchings, there were often what were called spectacle lynchings. And sometimes we have the idea of a lynching as they simply took somebody out and they hung him on a tree. It was usually far much more than that. Lynchings were usually brutalization of the person, torture of the person. African Americans who were accused of crimes and just, or were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And oftentimes what would happen, if you read the history of this, is people would go to church and then afterwards they would go out and gather by the hundreds to watch a lynching. And that's why they call them spectacle. It was like, this was in, and we kind of joked about it in our group in, in a kind of a morbid, joking way, is to say this was like their version of the church potluck. Was to gather, go to church together, and then go out afterwards and watch a human being being beaten, tortured, and hung on a tree. And there was a great connection between, there was another discussion with a KKK member. And this KKK, you were the Ku Klux Klan. And again, we sometimes think of that as something as ancient history. Again, 1980s. And this was in this small town. And the small town, it was literally like you went down the, um, the street, the main street of the town, and there was like the barber shop, there was the coffee shop, and then there was the KKK headquarters. And you went in the front door, and they had flags on the wall. And this, this guy, he's, he's again talking to a, this reporter, and he's just saying, oh, it's just, you know, well, you burn crosses. No, we weren't burning crosses. We just light crosses. This is ancient Scottish symbol. And so it was all wrapped up and tied together. Sundown towns. How many of you have ever heard of a sundown town or know what a sundown town is? In other words, it's like these were towns where you don't let the sun go down on you if you're an African-American going in this town. So there's something developed in the, um, the 1950s and 60s called the Green Book, which was a, a book that listed for African-American travelers which towns were sundown towns, which towns you did not want to stop in, which towns you did not want to visit. And one of the people in our group was talking about, this was in our Thursday night study group, was talking about a post they had seen on Facebook just in the past few months about people traveling and African-Americans still having those same sort of discussions even today about towns to avoid. Here in Michigan, not simply 
down south because we have this tendency sometimes, we as northerners sometimes be proud of ourselves and think like, oh, we don't have a racism problem, that's a southern problem. It's very much a thing true here. And so this person posted on Facebook and said, well, there's some towns I don't avoid. And other people are like, oh, well, that's ridiculous. And a bunch of other people are like, no, that's very much a true case. And so how can we be welcoming? And one of the ways we'd be welcoming is we just acknowledge that people have different experiences and then we begin to listen to those things. And so here's another historical example if you wonder if it's not true in Michigan. Uh, I, last year, I was helping my mom do some research on some property that my grandparents had bought in the 1950s that had our business, had our family business on it, and there were some disputes over the property and stuff, and so I had found this huge title book in her safe, and it was just, it, it was a record of the sales of that property that my grandparents purchased in 1950, um, and all that had gone on, you know, all the sales before that, and this was those old days, and it was all written down. And so this is a portion of it, and this was from 1950. And at the end of the description of the deed, it says, you may not be able to read it, it says, it is further agreed as a covenant running with the land, binding upon the heirs and assigns of said grantee, you always like the legal language, and their heirs or assigns that the above described property shall not be sold or transferred to anyone except a white Caucasian Gentile. 1950, 100 miles south of here in southern Michigan. So this is a part of our history. So in order to welcome, we must seek to understand. And the goal is not simply diversity, but imitating Jesus and beginning to be a truly a place of welcome. And I like the way Dr. Derwin Gray says it. He says this, One of the mistakes that the majority culture church has made in America is asking, how do we get diverse? And to trying to check that off pragmatically. It's not about how we get diverse. It's about how we love each other as brothers and sisters. So the goal may not simply be the diversity and looking a different way on a Sunday morning. What Derwin Gray is talking about is like, how do we truly love people? And we don't love people unless we understand. So maybe that first step for us is to begin to learn to educate. Now, many of you, our church has a subscription to something called Right Now Media. And I posted on that, and if you don't know how to access it, whatever, it's basically, it's like Netflix, but with Christian videos on it. And there's all kinds of learning things, and there are a number of them that have videos and studies about the history of the church's involvement. There's one called The Color of Compromise um, by Dr. Jamar Tisby, and then he has a follow-on to it about um, how to be anti-racist. And so some great studies of this, you say, well, I never heard any of this, and he has a great way of doing it. So what do we do with this? We look at what Paul says here, and I want us to end with this to realize that the gospel is a proclamation of welcome. That's the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is gospel proclamation is that all are welcome. That the walls have been torn down, this separation, if it's the torn down between Jews and Gentiles, it's torn down between everyone. That these walls have been torn down, that the gospel is this all-inclusive message that all are invited to it. And so the question in our prayer, Fruitland Covenant, is may we be a reflection of that. In all its glory. Maybe it's with disability. Maybe it's with different ethnicities. Maybe, I don't know what it looks like. But may we grow into a gospel church that reflects the love and the welcome of Jesus for all people.
Amen.